Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen and this is episode 31. This time around, we're going on a bit of an adventure. There are a lot of people out there offering their services as coaches and motivational speakers, but sometimes you wonder what qualifies them to do that. Not so with our latest guest. She has navigated the corporate world and developed and sold her own business. But get this, she has also run for Scotland, skied to the North Pole, and was a star performer in a Channel 4 series called Superhuman. Welcome to the wonderful world of Sue Stockdale, and discover how you really can achieve way more than you thought was possible. Sue Stockdale, you have run cross-country for Scotland, you've skied to the North Pole, and you came second in Channel 4's gruelling Superhuman Challenge. Did you ever anticipate such extraordinary achievements when you were a little girl growing up in Edinburgh? Absolutely not, but I do love adventure, so I suppose I might have imagined that I was a little bit like the famous five or the secret seven. I wanted to be in that gang. I guess I just like the idea of possibilities and the unknown, so I have a, a real interest in adventurous stuff. Did you have some sense of what you wanted to be uh, you know, later in life in terms of your career? Not at all. I mean, um, I didn't really think about it as a young girl. And uh, although I had uh, great grades at school, there was no history of anybody going to university in the family. So although I could have gone on to university, uh, I seemed to think that getting a job and going to data lease, which is what my first job offered me, was the best of both worlds. Continue on with the academic studies and get paid at the same time. And you're a gifted athlete. Did you? When did that kind of take off? Well, that started when I was about 16 years old because the PE teacher at my school was Margot Wells. And uh, for those listeners that like sport, they may remember Alan Wells, Mm -hmm. her husband, who won the gold medal at 1980 Olympics, the 100 metres. Well, Alan came into the school and brought his gold medal to school. And what a way of, you know, just seeing a role model and being inspired. And Mm -hmm. I really do think that um, Margot then encouraged me to continue on with my athletics. And my first focus was running a marathon. So I actually ran a marathon at 18 years old, the Edinburgh Marathon, right. and uh, said never again, once was enough. We, at a time when people don't run marathons like they do now, is probably quite an unusual thing for an 18-year-old to want to do. Yes, it was, and uh, I was pleased with my time. It was under four hours, so that was a success, but I said, oh, I wish I could do something a little bit shorter. So Margaret told me about Edinburgh Southern Harriers, as it was known at the time, the running club, and I therefore joined them and started doing 3,000 metres which was seem, seemingly, after a marathon, much shorter distance. So this is not steeplechase, this is running flat, so... No, flat on the track, so yeah. seven and a half laps Right. to, to do the 3,000 metres. And, and, and you ran a lot of cross-country as well, I believe. Yes, when, uh, you know, in the world of athletics in the winter, when you can't compete on the track, then you, you alternate into the cross-country season, and I was uh, pretty good at that, and we always had a good team in the club that were others competing in cross-country, so I, uh, I think I found the, the, the endurance and the strength that one needed to get through some of those muddy fields in Scotland was what brought me to the fore compared to some of those other more nimble runners that just ran across the easier grass <laughs> conditions that would be much faster. So those tough conditions from the wet and boggy fields really uh, enabled me to excel. And then when I think there was nobody else on the list that was available one weekend, I got called up to represent Scotland in a, in a home counties cross-country match, which wow. was fantastic. Uh, I was very proud of that. 
do you ever think that with you know the, the funding that is available in athletics now, if you'd you know been born in a slightly different era, you could have taken things further with the athletics? Uh, uh, perhaps. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've probably got a reasonable amount of talent, but a lot of it's through hard work. I think laterally, what I've really realised is it's as much about your psych- psychological approach and your mindset mm. as it is about having capability. And therefore, if I'd had an opportunity or some guidance to help me perhaps with my thinking as well as my running, I would have been even better. But I was very proud for what I achieved over the years that I competed at a high level. Uh, and so parallel to this, you, you, you're starting your, your career. And you, did you, go, you, you worked at British Gas. Did you go straight into that or was there something else between school and, and, and that? I started uh, two weeks after my 16th birthday wow. in, in British straight Gas in, in, in yeah. Scotland and uh, worked my way up through the organisation. And after a number of years, uh, the company was sponsoring a number of the employees to go on what was known as an Operation Rally expedition in those days. So that's a charity that take young people aged between 17 and 24 to adventurous parts of the world to carry out scientific community and adventure projects. So I applied as one of the corporate sponsored people and got selected, which gave me um, three months off work, salary paid, no less, but I did have to raise a substantial amount of money to pay for my place on the expedition. So that was really my first uh, foray into, first of all, the unknown in an expedition world, but secondly, the, the challenge of fundraising when you want to mm-hmm. put your mind into a big project. How do you convince people that it's worthwhile supporting you? And where did you go? I went to Kenya, northern Kenya. And uh, it is no joke to say that that expedition really changed my life because I suddenly realised that I was capable of a whole lot more than I had ever been doing in finance within British Gas. So yeah. coming back to Scotland after that... So what, what sort of things were you doing when you were over there? Well, we, we helped to build a school, yeah. and we were doing plastering on the walls in the school. We were carrying out a number of um, community projects as well, uh, helping the young children. We did a camel trek, and we were doing some scientific work uh, near Lake Beringo in the north of the Northern Frontier District. So it was all, all completely new to me, and you know, people these days pay a lot of money to go on safari and mm. to see the animals. Well, we were just living in the, in Kenya. You know, it was no safari, it was just life. So that was a, a real great way to see the wildlife as well as experience the country and hopefully make a little bit of a difference to those living in that community. So you returned uh, to Scotland with kind of changed horizons. Was this experience what led you to then working in Yugoslavia? Not immediately. Uh, it did give me a taste of adventure. I had had to buy my first rucksack and pair of boots, walking boots, to go to that Kenya expedition. So now I realise I love the outdoors. And in fact, there were a whole number of us that came back from different rally expeditions, but all in Scotland. And we wanted to kind of replicate that rally experience back in Scotland. So we found one of the team group found uh, Old Bothy up in Glenettive, near Glencoe. And our idea was then to refurbish that by taking groups from inner city areas, from dis- disadvantaged communities, and then to go up to the Bothy and to rebuild it and carry out outdoor activities. Well, actually, we founded a charity, which is known as Venture Scotland. And actually, now nearly 30 years on, it's one of the leading charities in its field. It's still going. So um, that was the way that we kind of continued on the adventure experience, but in Scotland and making a difference to the local communities there. So all of those things really fueled my interest in what's possible. And what were you getting from your time at British Gas? Were you enjoying 
working there as well? Yes, I was. I mean, you talk about athletics and one of the great uh, ways that I really got an extra benefit from my work in British Gas is they had an athletics team, a corporate athletics team. There were very few women that were runners in those days, or at least that were interested in running for the corporate team. So I managed to travel all over the UK for the company to run in different corporate races and it gave me, uh, you know, gave me a great network of contacts in something completely unrelated to the training and development department that I was working in. And it was after another um, number of years after that rally expedition, in nearly 10 years, that I saw an advert one day in the newspaper. To uh, It said, challenging opportunities for people not afraid of hard work in a rapidly changing environment. Now, you might think that sounds like a job in McDonald's. But it wasn't. This was a job in the United Nations and it was in the former Yugoslavia. So there was me with a, you know, a nice comfortable job, salary, pension scheme, company car, etc. All the trappings of corporate life. Looking at the opportunity for a one-year contract in a war zone. And you can imagine my family thought I was completely nuts. Why would I want to give all of that up? But to me, I saw it as an adventure and a real opportunity to go and, in my mind, make a difference in a bigger world. And the United Nations seemed like a very aspirational organisation within which to work. So, so I, I made the leap. So where were you based out there? Were you moving around quite a lot? Our uh, field base was in Zagreb in, in Croatia, well, which is now Croatia. Uh, we travelled about throughout the whole of the mission area. And my job was to improve the efficiency of the civilian part of the mission. So in effect, it was quality assurance. And that's what I've been doing laterally in British Gas. Uh, and therefore, it was, a, it was a kind of sideways step in job career but it was obviously a completely different environment for British Gas and actually after that one year I could have stayed on to continue on but I realised that I really wasn't making as much of a difference as I wanted to so I also learned that you know sometimes money you have money and a nice salary but it doesn't uh, really mean that much if you don't make a difference or it certainly doesn't mm. mean for me so I left that job and came back to the UK and trusted that I would find something else to do but it had been a great learning opportunity. Before we come back to I mean, there was obviously a horrendous civil war that was taking place there with atrocities and a very dangerous place. I mean, what what was it like for you where you you were staying? It was safe enough in Zagreb. It wasn't a, a, at all an issue there. But we did, as I say, we did travel out into the mission area for some of the projects I was working on. So you did get to see, you know, houses burned down in the fighting. We were on the front line in no man's land between the Serb-held Serb area and the, and the Croat-held area, working with the uh, the local military contingents there. So I, I did get around into the mission area. It does, you know, it does make you realise that, uh, as human beings, how it's so important for us to live in peace and that people who might be your neighbours one day could be your enemies the next and just how, uh, you know, how, how sad it is that these things happen. So it, it was a... It was a, it gave me a, again a bigger sense of the wider world and, mm. and what are the important things as human beings I think we have to hang on to and peaceful coexistence is probably one of them. Right. So back to the UK. What next? Well, there I was back in the UK and uh, as you probably worked out by now, like reading the newspaper. And as I was reading the newspaper again and it, and it was a lovely summer's afternoon. I can't really forget what it was like and. There I saw an advert, and this is while I didn't have a job and I was thinking about going back to university. I'd been studying at distance learning while I was abroad, so I thought I could finish that course uh, on a full-time basis. That was my intention to do instead of having a full-time job. And uh, I saw this advert that said, this time wanted 10 novice Arctic explorers to ski 350 miles to the magnetic North Pole. <laughs> well, I don't see adverts like that very often in the newspaper. 
So I was really intrigued. And, and there were two qualifications they were looking for. The first was the ability to work in a team, which I knew I could do from my rally days and from my business experience. The second was the ability to raise £15,000 to pay for the expedition. Well, I had raised only a tenth of that sum for the rally trip. So my thinking was, well, if it's meant to be, I'll find a way to make it happen. So I just had that innate belief that if it was to work out, it, it would. But what then happened was I got the brochure. And the brochure came back and it was all pictures of men. And it said, are you man enough for the ultimate challenge? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> so you thought, well, I'm going to show them. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it made me doubly determined to win a place on the team. And you did? Yes. So what happened? I mean, what was the experience like? Well, I would say that, you know, whilst the expedition experience was really challenging in the Arctic, I think like a lot of things, whether it's in business, uh, you know, or in expeditions, the biggest challenge is really the preparation and getting started. And to be on the start line, I had to raise a sum of money. And one of the ways that I uh, did was, uh, you know, you have to have a compelling argument, just like your business case. So there were two things that stood me in good stead. One was that I was going to be the first British woman to get there, if successful, which is always an interesting you know, media story. And the second thing was that we had a BBC cameraman with us on the expedition, and right. therefore it was going to be filmed. Mm. So to get sponsors that would have media coverage and mm. perhaps somebody that's the only woman or British woman in the team would perhaps get you know, prominent mm. media coverage was a, a attractive enough proposition to the sponsor who ultimately funded me, which was Bird's Eye Fish Fingers. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so did they give you a lifetime supply of fish fingers? <laughs> Thankfully not. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did have to do some educational projects with schools when I came back and talk about yeah. my experiences. So it's always a two-way process of win-win. Um, and it did, you know, that whole preparation that, bit that, is important. Why, why Bird's Eye? Did you just, how did you get, where did you start when you're trying to raise sponsorship from a corporate body like that? Did you just randomly contact lots of people and try and get in front of them? Well, I think, you know, as they always say, f family, friends and fools are always a good start point. And when they run out of money or aren't willing to support you, where do you go next? So I went to, obviously, companies like British Gas, people who had worked with or knew of me before. But I also then thought about the idea of cold places. So which companies would be interested in cold places and, and obviously the Arctic relevant to that? So I'd written, I wrote masses of letters because it was the days before email, really. And, you know, most people didn't bother even replying. And, mm. and it can be easy to get downhearted then. But I was determined to just say, no, if it's meant to be, it will happen. And when I did get a positive response to say, we'd like to have a conversation with you from Bird's Eye, when I went in to meet them, it was amazing that the Lucy, who I was, was the contact, she said, oh, Sue, I see in your letter here you've been on a rally expedition. She said, I've just come back as a rally-sponsored employee from Bird's Eye. And you know, it's amazing those little relationship mm. connections, just like in Scottish Business Network, you yes. make those connections, yeah. uh, how meaningful that can be just to get you on the road of something uh, and open up new opportunities. So off you set... Presumably the only woman on this expedition. I was one, I was one of two women. The oh. other woman was Swedish. Mm -hmm. So she ultimately became the first Swedish woman to get to the, right. the Magnetic yeah. North Pole as well. But it was good to have a little bit of uh, moral support from another female in the team. So how, how much were you able to enjoy it? Having done all the hard work in a way of getting there, raising the money, getting yourself you know, able to ski long distances, uh, or, or was it a total grind? It was, it was tough. And I think, like anything, it's often easy to forget how tough it was. Sometimes we were in temperatures of minus 40 Celsius, which is effectively cold enough to freeze your flesh in seconds. You know, I know we know, we know it's cold in Scotland often, but not necessarily that cold. 
and you know we were dragging heavy sledges and uh, so it made for a, a really uh, physically and mentally demanding 30 days which is what how long our expedition took and I really drew upon my athletics experience because in on a cross-country race or an athletics track when you're on the sixth out of seven laps and you're really exhausted I always used to say to myself come on Sue you know just you have a lap to go you can keep going you can keep going well it was it was equivalent in the Arctic you, you know you'd be saying we're going to ski 10 miles today and that might be our ambition and then we get going and you're knackered after two miles so I would say just get through the next hour see how we go just get through the next 10 minutes and I used to break down the big goal of the day just into sometimes hours and even minutes right. and focus on that and then it's amazing how, what satisfaction you get from saying well if I can do that mile or I can do that hour mm-hmm. I can do the next one mm-hmm. and I've always I've never wanted to ever entertain giving up because you can't get there's no way to get rescued in the Arctic unless it's some major emergency. So you can't say, oh, I'll just stop. So you have to keep going. And, uh, you know, it's like that in business, isn't it? Sometimes mm-hmm. we have the ups and the downs, but we just have to take the mindset of let's just get through the next day and see what happens. So that optimism mm-hmm. and belief in one's ability is really two of the things that helped me to get there. Did, did you sort of bond with other people on the expedition or was there also a competitive element? You kind of racing against each other. It, well, it was really actually a great fr- friendly group of people and one of the things that the guys said right at the outset is they were so glad that women were in the team they felt it was less sort of macho and, and competitive so we brought a different kind of vibe to the group and David David Hempelman Adams who was the expedition leader who's a very well known explorer he did quite a, what I think was a wise thing in terms of managing the day because we would normally be in groups of four four people per tent and there would be a number of tents. So he would allot responsibility for leadership of the day to one tent group. So you can imagine it, you know, tent A, for example, they come up with their strategy as to how they're going to inspire all of us to ski 10 miles that day, for example. And at the end of the day, we'd have to get out our GPS and check how far we had travelled, because of course we couldn't use compass because we're heading to the magnetic north. Then, uh, you know, we, we say it was 10 miles, then group B, they're responsible the next day. So, of course, group B are, we can do 11. So they would be trying to motivate us to ski further. So I think, I think David used to call it co-opetition. So there was a kind of internal competition, but the idea that everyone's collaborating to enable everyone to succeed. Were there, were there any sort of moments of crisis uh, when you really were struggling? Or, I mean, polar bears, did you have any encounters with them? Yes, that was a moment of crisis. <laughs> There was a, a, a bear, and, and of course, in the Arctic, there's nothing to contrast in terms of colour. Everything is white, so you don't have anything to measure the size of something with. And you see this creature coming towards you. It might look quite small, but then as it gets closer, it gets much, much bigger. And, and in fact, we'd seen its paw prints before we saw the bear, and that made us think it must be really enormous. Anyway, the bear came towards us, and we'd been given special training before we went to know what to do if we met a polar did bear. Did you have a gun? We did. Yeah. But you only use a gun as a last resort. Mm-hmm. So we had flares to fire off into the sky, because really it's about making a noise and frightening the bear. So when the bear arrived, half of the team went for their rif- the rifles that we had and the flares, and the other half of the team went for their cameras. <laughs> Which camera were you? <laughs> well, I went for my camera and then realised that I hadn't changed the film because I thought, oh, it's another day of snow and I said we won't see anything and I hadn't bothered to change the film. So, of course, that's not an issue these days when we have digital, but it, that was a problem for me. 
So did the, the, the bear just ran off, did it? Yes, yeah. I think it got frightened. There were, you know, 12 people in red suits waving and making a lot of noise. Yeah. It, it trotted off the other direction. But you never know whether it's just hiding behind an iceberg and waiting to come back out again later. Uh. <laughs> so, you know, and, and there's crevasses, there's uh, changing ice conditions. There are a lot of potential threats out there. Mm. But you have to not focus on those because, you know, otherwise you'd go mad. You, you're in that environment. It's a privilege to be there. And it's about really having the support of your team members and recognising that Mother Nature is going to allow you to succeed, not the other way around. And, and so how, how does it feel at the end of achieving something like that? Was it, were you hugely elated or just absolutely exhausted? A bit of both, actually. I mean, proud and, and you know pleased that we'd, we'd been successful. But also you realise that then there was a plane that was going to come and land to pick us right. up and take us back to base camp. And the camaraderie, you can imagine the strength of bond and friendships that we'd had during that month we knew that was going to then finish as soon as other people came into the to the to the space so there was a a tinge of sadness as well but a relief to get back ultimately to the UK and to to comfortable life and warmth (laughs) Uh, yeah but for for a while but then you obviously got a taste for it because you went off on further expeditions didn't you including to Antarctica yes yes I I seem to have a, a particular interest in going to cold and white places so I've been down to Antarctica and across the Greenland ice cap and uh, dog sledding in Greenland and various other other cold places. So, yeah, I think it holds an attraction. Because about what I really learned and was about the importance of authenticity, and I think that's a lesson that we can learn about and apply in business too. There's nothing to hide behind in the Arctic, literally. You know, you, you have to do everything in front of everybody else. And therefore, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, what job title you've got, you know, what your background is, you're a human being out there on the ice and you have to just accept everyone else is in the same boat. And that idea about that being your true self, just being authentic, I really brought that back into my work these days and tried to really encourage other people to just be authentic, which is good enough. You know, if we're all treat one another as human beings Mm. in the workplace and respectful, of course, of job titles and role, etc., but... At the end of the day, there are other people and we can connect with them as human beings. And I think that's sometimes we lose that message in work. Well, that's a really lovely message. But some might say that you could also connect to other people as a superhuman because you that was what happened next, wasn't it? You ended up on this Channel 4 superhuman program uh, competing against each other people and very gruelling sort of tests you were set. So tell us all about that. Well, yes, that was, it was a little bit like, you might remember the old days of Superstars as a television mm. programme. Well, this was kind of Superstars for Science, taking uh, 10 tough scientific tests, testing things like physical intelligence, mental intelligence, emotional intelligence, uh, me- memory under stress, all sorts of different things. And they selected five men and five women to take part in all of these tests. Well, I viewed it, again, as a competition against myself, although there were other people I was competing against, I could only do as well as I could do. So I was, it was about exploring my own potential. And every time we were told to show up for a test, we didn't know what the test was. So imagine you're just coming through the door and into a particular environment and then being mm. told you have to do whatever it might be. For example, the first test was fearlessness. Now, on the application form, I had written down, truthfully, that my greatest fear is heights. And I did ask my colleagues afterwards how, how honest were they. And, of course, everybody else seemed to be not honest on the form. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the test involved standing at a gantry 150 foot off the ground 
where you had we were wearing a heart rate monitor and you had an earpiece in that was making a noise like boom 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 to hear your heart rate you were tied to a bungee cord at the back of your waist and then suspended overlooking the ground and there was two of you doing this competition at the same time and the person who used up the equivalent of 500 heartbeats quickest so their heart's racing more quickly than the other the cord was cut and they, they find themselves doing a bungee jump to the, to the ground <laughs> Well, with somebody who has a fear of heights, they pitched me up against a firefighter. <laughs> so you can imagine, he's used to going up in the turntable ladder, yeah. etc. And the scientist who devised the test asked us both what our strategies were. And I said, well, I'm going to use uh, visualisation, because that's something I've used in sport. Visualising, being calm, noticing my breathing, I'm going to concentrate mm. on doing that. And the, he asked the firefighter what he was going to do, and he said, oh, nothing, I'm used to it. So all the camera crew were betting on who was going to win. And everybody bet on the firefighter apart from the scientist. Right. And well. I'm pleased to say that I beat the firefighter and he had to so do the So you didn't jump. have to do the bungee jump? <laughs> Absolutely not. But so. that, that, that was a great way, again, of thinking about, you know, skills that I'd learned in athletics and skills that I'd used in, in business as well. That visualisation mm. was really helpful in that environment too. What was the hardest test? We then did memory yeah. under, under stress. Right. So that test involved uh, going into the, uh, what I think is known as the dunker, where mar- the Marines are, or anybody going out to the North Sea oil rigs would have done a similar test, where you go into a submerged helicopter underwater and have to release your safety belt and swim to the surface, which is a, so a test that uh, you know, many people do do. What was added to that was we did it in the dark, and at the start of that test, we were given what's known as a faces and names test. So we saw a series of fa- faces flashing up on a screen, and beneath the face, we were given a name and a job title. Then we had to go and do the dunker experience, and I, I panicked. So I released my seatbelt before we submerged properly upside down. So I was panicking about underwater, thinking I was drowning, and the safety diver had to come and rescue me. And then after I was taken, both of us got out safely to the side of the pool, then the, face, the faces then reappeared, and we had to quote what the person's name and job title was. So that was a real you know, challenge to see how good our memory was under stress. And that was the most difficult test for me because of my panicking underwater. Understandable. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> glad to be alive. Yes. <laughs> so you, you came second in that, though? Yes, I was second woman and fourth overall between the men as well. Right. So I was, I was really pleased uh, because, as I say, I was really competing against myself. And uh, I think I, my, as my niece likes to call me, she says, Auntie Sue, you're sub-superhuman. <laughs> <laughs> a great way of bringing us down to earth. Yes. Um, so, I mean, what is it about you that, that loves putting yourself in these kind of situations, these challenges, and putting yourself under threat as well? Well, I think, first of all, we, you know, as human beings, we like to keep ourselves safe. And I like to step out my comfort zone. My, my, my mother sadly died when I was 14, and I think... She was in, in her 50s and it made me realise that you know, life is short and that we ought to, to live each day to the full. And I do think we've got, each of us as human beings have got massive amount of potential and yet we just don't realise it. So with that idea that you know, there's a finite amount of time we have, I really want to explore how much potential I've got, partly because I, I have a curiosity, but also, and probably more important for me these days, is about using that experience as a way of inspiring other people to kind of say, well, if Sue can do it, I can do it too. Mm-hmm. And not to do the same experience, but to get to their equivalent North Pole and whatever challenge they're aiming to undertake. So I think it's about um, just, you know, 
we're just challenging ourselves and not being uh, so much in our comfort zone that when something comes along to upset us, we can't cope with it. And, and that's an important thing these days in business when change is all around us all the time. Yeah, yeah. and so this led you to set up a business called Mission Possible? Yes, Mission Possible was a business that was supporting women to start up and grow businesses. And uh, during that journey, as I was planning to, to grow and expand that business across the UK, I, I realised that where my strengths lay were not actually in running a business. I, I, it was a tough uh, way to kind of get that lesson to learn. So I then had a choice. Uh, either I continue on doing something that isn't really got my heart in it because it's not where my strengths lie, I find somebody else to run it or I sell it. So I chose the latter and found a buyer for the business, sold it, and then realised that, you know, me being me and doing my inspirational work and coaching work and leadership development work as a means of working with others was really where my strengths lie and that's what I like to focus on. So that's what you've been doing ever since? Yes. Um, so what, you, you, you provide a range of different sort of services. Can you talk us through them? Yeah, I think they're all... If there was a common... Uh, thing that really encapsulates them all is about helping people to maximise their potential in business. So that's at the heart of it. And, and the way people can maximise their potential is they can be inspired by listening to me. So I do a lot of motivational presentations. They can be inspired when I coach them. So I do a lot of executive coaching with senior people in, in organisations to help them to, to realise what they can be more effective at. And then I also do leadership development programmes so that could be for larger groups of people. But also, sometimes people like to read things and listen to podcasts. So uh, I've, been, I've written a whole number of different books on subjects to do with business and more laterally started up a community that we're calling Access to Inspiration. And that primarily started off, first of all, with a podcast series. Great idea, podcast. Um, and so over the course of your career, what, we've covered, we've touched on some of them already, but um, what sort of insights have you... Uh, gathered that, that you think contribute to, to people making a success of their lives? I think ac action orientation is one. You know, we, we, we can all have grand ideas of things that we'd like to achieve or we'd like to achieve for our businesses. They will only ever remain ideas on paper unless we do something, and that's where we get the learning from. So this idea, I think, you know, these days we call it agile, about iterations and fast, fail fast, and... Uh, so, you know, it's, it's having an, an, an ambition or a goal or an area of focus, being prepared to try something out. And then what's also equally as important is to take that time for reflection and learning, because then that gives us the, the insight to then change or do something differently next time. And I find a lot of businesses are very good at having the ambitious goals and they're very good at taking action. What they don't do is allow time for that proper reflection. And it doesn't take long to do that. I've seen it done hugely effectively in the world of sport, and with organisations like the police force and people in the emergency services that have got that time to just take a moment or two to reflect on what have we learned from this, what have we done well, what do we need to do differently next time. A few questions well considered can make a huge difference to how we improve our performance. So if there's anything that I think the, the business community can really continue to develop and learn from is to take time for some sort of reflection and insight gathering. Are you living in London now, Sue? I live just outside London in Wiltshire. Wiltshire so I, I live very in the different to the plains of Antarctica and Absolutely. the Arctic Circle. Um, what did you do at the weekend then? You're not are you out? Are you still sort of out doing crazy stuff? Uh, not so much. I, do, I, I had two dogs. Uh, they are no longer around now. But when I had the dogs, I I go regularly walking. And in fact, I still walk these days 
with my what I call my imaginary dog <laughs> you know you have to have a reason to get out so um, I think I do like to get out and have exercise and that's my form of reflection so I can be moving and enjoying the countryside and you know just a chance to think and explore the world and I think when we get back to nature there's something about you know I, it might sound a bit odd but just walking along and listening to the, the, the leaves blowing in the trees the birds singing uh, you know, you don't have to think about anything else and you can just get back to being a human being and exploring and enjoying the wonderful world that we live in. So that sounds a bit boring perhaps for some, but that's what I love doing. Not at all. And we're going to finish here with five quick questions. Are you ready? What did you have for breakfast? Porridge. Very healthy. I had porridge as well, actually. <laughs> um, Favourite place in Scotland? Uh, Glen Etive, in Glencoe, near Glencoe. Why? Because that's where we uh, had had the bossy and I've spent a lot of happy times there. Of course. Um, the athlete you most admired growing up, I think I might know the answer to this now. <laughs> well, I think it's got to be Alan Wells. <laughs> um, the sport you haven't tried yet but would like to? Uh, I, what came to mind there was hang gliding. I'm not sure I oh. would be brave enough to do <laughs> it. Your fear of heights. <laughs> but it does look like it's an intriguing thing to see the world as if you were a bird. <laughs> And finally, 2020 is not far away now. Do you have a resolution for the year ahead? I think it would have to be to eat more greens. <laughs> well, that is a very admirable resolution. <laughs> Sue Stockdale, thank you very much. Thanks very much. It's been great to talk to you. Great stuff from Sue, and I'm going to eat more greens too next year. I promise we'll be back again in two weeks. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.